Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. Before we begin, I'd just like to say a big thank you to everyone who's listening in, and a special thanks to everyone who's given the podcast a rating or review or spread the word. If this is your first time, then welcome. I hope you enjoy the episode. But if you're a regular listener, we really appreciate you coming back. I can't believe it's already six months in, and with this release schedule, it really does feel like we're just getting started. At the time I'm recording this, Christmas is looming, and I had planned a special episode on ghost stories for Christmas that was going to come out before then. Unfortunately, cold has struck, and while that episode will still be released, it won't be till the new year now. I hope you'll join us again in 2019 to hear it, but in the meantime, have a great Christmas and New Year. And with all that over with, on with today's story. We've not done a fairy tale on the podcast yet, but today's story definitely fits that mould. It's Scottish, so it begins Langsyne, or in the standard English, Once Upon a Time. Comforting little phrase that, isn't it? It takes me right back to being tucked in at night. Anyway... Let's begin. Langsyne in Norway, there lived a woman with three daughters. Because this is a fairy story, we get to know basically nothing at all about them. Like, really, what I've already recounted is pretty much it. We don't even get their names, people. But for the sake of the story, let us assume that they were not too rich and not too poor, just in the middle. A single mum doing all right for herself in the world. Childhoods of the daughters? No idea. Father or fathers? Nope, none of that. Being a single parent in the pre-modern world wasn't particularly rare, of course. Everything was out to kill you back then, and in the fairy tale versions of the world, that counts for double. Now one fine day, not particularly noteworthy in the normal scheme of days, it came to pass that the eldest daughter reached that age where her thoughts turned to those feminine longings which young women are wont to feel. You know what I mean. Those urges to leave home, boldly go out into the world alone, make a mark upon it, and above all to seek one's fortune. So the eldest daughter went to her mother and said, Mother, bake me a bannock and roast me a collop. For I'm going away to seek my fortune. Now for those of you worried that I'm corrupting the youth by throwing in slang terms for either mind-altering substances or mind-boggling acts of indiscretion, I can assure you that neither is the case. A bannock is a big round dense bread made of coarse grain dough and baked on a big stone. Sometimes they've got raisins and butter in them as well. The perfect energy-packed travel food for a quest. And a collop? Well, that just means a big hunk of meat. Gotta get your protein. Mum quickly came up with the goods. She was happy to oblige her daughter, despite the blunt manner in which the request had been delivered. She remembered how it felt to be young and be overcome with the urgent call to adventure. The eldest daughter took her hearty comestibles and set off. And she knew where she was headed too. The old witch washerwoman. 
Once she arrived, she boldly stated her purpose. The witch, clearly an old hand at this, told the young woman to stay with her for a bit. Every day she stayed, she was to look out the back door, along the road which led by the witch's house. The first day, the daughter looked out, and saw nothing of interest. The second day, nothing to report. But, the third day... Well, we all know how threes work in fairy tales. The third day, there was a coach coming along the road, pulled by six beautiful horses. The eldest daughter ran back into the house. Breathlessly, she told the witch what she had seen. Well, what are you still doing here? Get you off after it. That there is for you. Filled with excitement, the woman rushes out to the coach, which stops for her. She opens the door, greets somebody, gets into the coach, and the camera pans away as the horses begin to trot away again, and the coach disappears off down the road. The scene fades and soon we're back with Mum and the middle daughter. It's some indeterminate time later. Do they know what happened after the eldest daughter got in that coach? No idea. But whatever the case, the middle daughter's time had come and she went to see her mother. Mother, bake me a bannock and roast me a collop for I'm going away to seek my fortune. They grow up so fast, don't they? But Mum brought up her daughters to be bold and headstrong, so was only happy to help. She got down to the cooking, and soon unnamed daughter too was equipped with a hobbit-worthy supply of provisions, and set off for that washer-witch's house. Upon announcing her purpose to the washer-witch, she too was offered the Airbnb deal, with splendid views onto the road out back. Check them out once a day. On the first day, she saw nothing. And on the second day, she saw, all together now, nothing. And on the third day, the daughter went out and, lo and behold, if there wasn't a carriage coming down the road. This one had only four horses, though, but it was all equal to the daughter, who became even more excited when the old witch said, Well then, away you go. That there is for you. And of course, the second daughter did just that. Now as we watch the second coach drive away into the distance, I know what you're thinking. Did the witch and the coach owners have some kind of deal going on here? A finder's fee arrangement at least. It was her house where these coaches were riding past, remember? And a few days after the women arrived? Was this some kind of scam, or at least joined up referral marketing? Get a young woman, be all like, Ooh yes, it's your fortune, dearie. Find someone who wants a young woman seeking her fortune, take a little cut. Well, that was what I was wondering anyway. I've got a suspicious mind. But the case of the youngest daughter, and yes of course we return to her now, well her experience might throw a spanner into my amateur detective works. But before we turn to that, let's talk about names, because, spoiler alert, we're about to get a lot more attached to this character. And while the original text of the story refers to her throughout without a name, it's getting a little confusing slash frustrating. And while we're at it, let's talk Norway. While I'm going to pronounce Norway exactly like that, it is absolutely an alternate spelling of Norway, but one which exists pretty much only in this story. So this happens in some kind of mythical Norway, even though it's a Scottish tale. 
and because it's in Norway and there are no names, I'm going to assign the three most popular Norwegian female names to the daughters. So the eldest daughter, who we'll never see again, will retroactively be Anne. The middle daughter was Inga, and you can forget about those entirely, should have used them at the time, but I didn't. Just know that the youngest daughter is called Kari. Oof, so with all that kind of sorted out, back to the story. So the day came when the youngest daughter, Kari, went to her mother, and with a striking degree of unoriginality she said, Mother, bake me a bannock and roast me a collop, for I'm going away to seek my fortune. The obliging mother was of course very used to this now, and very soon she was sending Kari on her way to the Washerwitch. When she arrived, she was of course told that she could stay for a few days, and to remember to look out the back door every day. On the first day with the helpful witch, Kari looked out of her back door, but saw nothing of interest. On the second day, no surprises here, nothing again. But on the third day, Kari looked out of the door, and there she saw a huge black bull strutting down the road. Unlike her sisters before her, Corrie did not come back into the house all full of excitement. She probably wouldn't have even have mentioned it, but the witch came up behind her, saw the bull, and said her line. Well, lass, that one there is for you. What? said Corrie. It's for you, repeated the witch. You're done here. That's your fortune. No, that's, that's not right. It, it can't be. But even as she objected, the huge bull strode towards the witch and the young woman. The beast was gigantic and frightful. It dwarfed Kari. She regarded it with fear. Muscles rippled as it walked, and Kari took in the look in its eyes, crazy and wild. Sharp horns looked like they could all too easily be used to gore a human, and Kari shuddered as it came to a stop beside her and snorted. The noise filled the air and conveyed a powerful sense of menace and aggression. This is not what I meant, no. But it was too late. The witch, with a surprising unnatural strength, grasped hold of the terrified woman, lifted her up and forcefully sat her astride the bull as though it were a horse. Hold on tightly, the witch advised, for the bull quickly started off again. It continued on its way, but now it had a passenger, the confused and desperate Kari grimly hanging on. She daren't dismount. I mean, maybe she could leap down, though the ground looked far away, and the bull never seemed to stop. But even if she could make that, she had a horrible suspicion that the animal might just trample her down, and she was under no illusion that she could outrun it. No, she'd just have to keep holding on until an opportunity presented itself. 
For its part, the bull just kept on walking, seemingly unconcerned by Kari's presence, if it even noticed her. The countryside passed them by, and soon Kari was far, far away from anywhere she'd ever known. After a while, hunger began to gnaw away at her, and she started to feel faint. She felt her grip on the bull starting to weaken, and her belly rumbled loudly. She'd eaten that collop and bannock long ago, and dearly wish she had some more. Her suffering didn't go unnoticed, though. Oh, you're hungry, came the low, rumbling voice of the bull. Should have said. Well, reach into my right ear and eat what you find there. And for drink? Well, that's in my left ear, obviously. Help yourself. Kari's hunger pains were suddenly forgotten in a rush of astonishment. You can talk? If this was a Disney film, I'm sure the bull would have come back with some sarcastic wisecrack setting itself up as the comedy animal sidekick. But it wasn't, so it didn't. It just repeated the instructions. Food in the right ear, drink in the left. Kari's mind was racing. This was absurd. A talking bull? Food in its ear? Ew. But this whole situation was absurd. And she was hungry. And kind of out of options. Help, in for a penny, in for a pound. She leant forward, gingerly reached her hand into the bull's admittedly over-large right ear. Pulled something out and bit into it. Perhaps it was a whole bannock lodged in there. Maybe it was a huge, disgusting-looking lump of earwax. But whatever Corrie found in the ear, she was so hungry. And the bullet said it was fine. So she bit into it. And the taste. The taste was heavenly. Corrie ate some more, and within a short time she was full and felt utterly satisfied. Though the logistics of drinking out of the left ear were surely more of a challenge... Kari managed it, and what she found in that lug hole was wonderfully refreshing. As well as having her hunger sated, Kari was much calmer. The bull no longer seemed so scary. This felt like the start of an adventure. There was no more conversation for a long time. The bull used his gift of speech sparingly, and Kari was far too wary to begin a conversation. So they rode in silence, and they rode all through the day, through the beautiful and wild country. And just as the curtain of twilight began to descend, Kari spied a huge, stunning castle, not too far distant. The gruff voice of Kari's unusual mount came again. We're stopping there for the night, for it is the palace of my older brother. Bulls own palaces now? Honestly, that's probably only the third or fourth most surprising thing to have happened to Kari today, so she was entirely ready to accept the news. But when they arrived at the entrance to that great palace, there was just humans to be seen. Pages and footmen and servants, who lifted the young woman off of the bull's back. Once free of her, the bull did not come into the palace, but left for a nearby wood, telling her he was there for the night and he'd return for her tomorrow. Back in the presence of other humans, it might be expected that Kari would seek explanations, and given her kidnap, seek to escape. But these options didn't seem to be on the table. 
the servants tended her gently but firmly, and guided her first to a sumptuous meal, and then to a huge, luxurious bed where she was to spend the night. The opulence of the palace was well beyond Kari's experience, and overwhelmed and disorientated, she let herself be led. Left alone in that great bed, any resolve she might have had to discover what was going on was soon overcome by the intense weariness. The day had been so full of varying emotions, new experiences, and the many miles of travel. Her head had barely hit the welcome softness of the pillow before she was in a deep, deep sleep. She awoke the next morning to sunlight streaming in from the slight gap in the velvet curtains and felt utterly refreshed. A breakfast awaited her, and the castle's inhabitants guided her gently as before and gave no answers to questions she had about the bull. After breakfast, she was led into a parlour, the beauty of which made her gasp. It was all shining, and may even have had a revolving disco ball to really emphasise it. An old man was in the room, and when he saw Kari he produced a platter, upon which there was a single apple. It was a pretty fancy-looking shiny apple, one of those organic ones. The man proffered it towards Kari. Um, well, I've just eaten breakfast, actually. Thanks, but no thanks. No, said the man. You must take it, but don't eat it now. You must only eat it when you're on the greatest danger a mortal has ever been in. Whoa, that's some ominous foreshadowing there, Kari might have said. I mean, how long do apples keep for, anyway? Take it, said the man, and Kari did so. And with her new gift, Kari was placed again on the back of the bull, and off they set. Again they rode far, far away, passing through breathtaking countryside, through forests and valleys, past huge mountain ranges, and alongside vast rivers. The bull was taciturn, and they exchanged few words, but Kari was becoming ever more comfortable with him. As the evening drew in, and the shadows lengthened, the pair came upon another castle. Nakari had believed that the castle they left that morning was the epitome of architectural magnificence, but as she cast her eyes over this new castle, she realised how wrong she had been, for this was a far grander affair. The turrets were taller and pointier, the walls towered higher, the crenellations were more crinkly, the buttresses abutted more butterly. The bulls spoke. Tonight we shall stay here in this place, for my middle brother lives here and you'll never guess what happened next. The bull went off to sleep outside, Kari was brought into the palace, given food and a bed, fell fast asleep, and the next morning was brought into a fine, richly decorated room. There, she was greeted by a man, slightly younger than the one the day before, but who, Kari fancied, displayed features slightly reminiscent of the apple giver. This man too had a platter, and upon it was a delectable-looking pear, the finest she had ever seen. You must take it, but don't eat it now. 
You must only eat it when you're in the greatest danger a mortal has ever been in. Right, said Kari, taking the pear. I'm sure this is going to go just fine. A few minutes later, and she was back on the ball, and they were off yet again. There aren't many surprises in the third day of their travels, for the listener or for Kari herself, who is getting into the flow of this. Ride through the day, arrive at a castle in the early evening. This castle outdoes the one on the previous day, in all manners. Biggest, boldest, bestest. The bull breaks his silence to inform Kari that this is the abode of his youngest brother. Kari is helped off of the bull and led into superlative castle without him. She goes to sleep in the giantest, comfiest bed, sleeps soundly, and in the morning after a humongous breakfast, she is led into a room far more magnificent than the now quite tawdry-seeming rooms of the previous day's castles. As an aside, I noticed that with the bull's brothers, it's the youngest who got the best outcome, the biggest castle slash palace, but with Kari and her siblings, it was the eldest who got the coach and six, and the youngest who got the booby prize of the bull. I wonder if Kari realised this and felt aggrieved, but most likely she had other things to focus on, like the handsome but familiar-looking young man in front of her, with his platter and the piece of fruit upon it. This plum, began the youngest brother. Yes, yes, take it, don't eat it now, but wait until I am in the greatest danger a mortal has ever been in. Er, yes. You can't by any chance tell me anything more about any such danger, can you? asked Kari. Sorry, stammered the rich young man nervously. It's not in the script, you see. Right, well, thank you anyway, I suppose. Kari took the plum, left the palace, and found the bull. She was lifted onto his back again, and away they went. But there was no younger brother still, and after a while they came to a dark and frightful glen. There the bull stopped, and he bid Kari to dismount, and for the first time she let herself down from his back. The bull turned to face her, all huge snorting nostrils and crazy eyes. But now, despite his appearance, his power seemed reassuring rather than threatening. The last few days had been a time of great change, confusion and oftentimes fear. But by now there was no doubt in Kari's mind that this strange steed was on her side. She was beginning to feel tentatively confident that maybe everything would work out okay for her and her companion, so perhaps nothing could have prepared her for what the bull revealed next. Kari, I must go now, but hopefully only for a little while. And you must wait here for me. I have a battle to fight. Kari gasped. I'm going to give you the truth. My opponent is... The devil himself. Kari was completely dumbfounded. Now listen carefully. You must sit there, upon that flat stone. And you must move neither hand nor foot until I return. Or else I will never be able to find you again. Don't move an inch, you understand? Kari nodded slowly. 
Now presently, everything around here, the trees, the grass, the rocks and the earth, will change colour. And in that way you shall know the outcome of our battle. For if it all changes to blue, then I will have been victorious. But if it becomes red, then the devil will have conquered me. And if that happens, then you must run, run far away. Now sit, and remember, don't move. And as she was bidden, Kari sat on the stone, and the bull left to fight a battle of the most epic proportions against the oldest and most powerful enemy of mankind. What an amazing clash that must have been, the real match of the millennium. But Kari, like us, heard none of it. She sat stock still, almost too terrified to even breathe. Don't move a hand or a foot. She waited for her chromatic pager to let her know the result. Somewhere, off in the distance, the devil and the bull were locked in a titanic mortal combat that would determine her fate, and maybe the fate of the world to boot. And all she could do was sit, and wait, and hope. She wasn't sure at first, the change was gradual, but in time it was unmistakable, colour seeping into everything around, a dye spreading and staining the surroundings, even the very air flickered and changed. And it changed to blue. Kari let out a tremendous sigh of relief and exuberance flowed through her, and as joy overcame her, she involuntarily lifted one foot and crossed it over the other. So glad was she of the bull's victory. Soon, the victorious bull returned to the spot he had left Kari, his heart full of joy. But as desperately as he sought after her, he could never find her. Kari waited in that blue place for a long time, desperately hoping he would come. But in her heart she knew the awful truth, knew the cost of that slight, unwitting movement. Fatigue and hunger crept up on her gradually, and after some long time she found that she was sobbing uncontrollably. At last she accepted it, got up, and wandered away from the glade, knowing not where she was headed. And it's right about now in the story that things start to get weird. Time and space are about to get muddled up in a fairy tale-esque manner, so suspend your disbelief and strap in for a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, nursery-rhymey-timey stuff. On and on she walked, until eventually she came to a hill. Just a perfectly normal hill, made entirely of glass. They hadn't passed by that earlier in the day, she would have remembered. The great glass hills stretched off into the distance in both directions, so she tried to climb it. 
but she only got a few steps off the ground before... Well, it was glass. With a noise like a squeegee at a window, she slid all the way back down. So Kari tried to walk around it. But however far she went, the great glass hill was still there, blocking the way. Eventually she came upon a house. It turned out to be the house of a smith. He was friendly enough, somehow not important enough to get dialogue, and somehow he was making a living out in the strange land beyond the glass hill. And luckily for Kari, he had a method to climb the hill. Iron shoes. Which, honestly, iron shoes on glass... I kind of get how that could work, but smashing two big chunks of heavy metal onto glass just feels really dangerous. But if that was the only way out of this place, which for some reason it was, then she'd have to do it. Kari prepared herself to wear the shoes and to climb the hill. She just had to do one small thing for the smith before he would make them for her. Just work for him. for seven years. That's right. Simple, eh? And so, she did. The bull did not reappear. Kari didn't work out an alternate way of reaching her destination. The young woman worked and worked for seven long years, and by the end of it, she was no longer quite so young. Now the smith was as good as his word, and on the last day of her seven years, he presented Kari with a pair of iron shoes. By this point of her life, the bull must have been but a distant memory. What must Kari have felt on that momentous day before setting off on a quest again, a quest she had begun so many years before? It would only be natural to be nervous, leaving the place she had known for so long. But whatever worry she had, she was determined. So she put the shoe to the glass and she climbed, up and up, higher and higher. And eventually, after many hours, she reached the top. Stretching away in front of her was a perfectly normal looking country. She switched back to her usual shoes, put the iron ones in the bag with the fruit she'd been carrying for many years, which were of course still perfectly ripe, and off she set for the next stage of her adventures. It wasn't too long before she found herself at yet another house in this new lonely land. It belonged to an old washerwoman, somewhat like the witch at the beginning, who lived there with her daughter. Kari quickly learned that they were rather obsessive types, for they had one task to perform, and it really wasn't going that well. The old woman explained. A dashing knight had come to them to enlist their services as washerwomen. He had given them some clothes, covered in blood. Whose blood? They didn't know. Could be his, could be an opponent, could be his dogs, could be a huge mess of different people's blood, all in one dirty set of clothes. The identity of the blood's previous owner wasn't the important bit. The important bit was that the knight had given the women a Daz doorstep challenge, with an interesting prize at the end. The woman who could wash his whites whiter than white 
would get the knight's hand in marriage. Is this a strange and fundamentally awful criteria on which to choose a bride? Hell yeah. Does it cut out all the difficulty of dating, getting to know one another, assessing compatibility, and all those awkward tricky bits of making a relationship work? Absolutely. One criterion. That's it. The knight liked to keep things simple. So with visions of her daughter soon marrying the rich and noble knight, the washerwoman had set to work. This was their job after all. It should be a doddle. They washed and they washed, using all the techniques and powders they knew. Wash and wash, but as hard as they tried, the stains would never out. The knight stopped by occasionally to see how they were doing and whether he was about to get hitched. Nope, still all bloody. Well, it's a bachelor's life for me then, he said. Kari, who had taken up with the pair, met the knight on those occasions. And of course, it was love at first sight. She adored him. It was possible that aside from the smith, he was the only man she'd seen for more than seven years. She didn't get out much. But whether it was true love or infatuation didn't matter. She wanted this night, and an opportunity soon arose to prove herself. As a last resort, they suggested Kari give it a try. Now she didn't know much about washing, but she took the gory garments in her hand and scrubbed them in the water in just the same way as the women had. And she found to her delighted astonishment that the stains came out. The clothes were clean and dazzling, as good as new. The woman and her daughter gathered round. What's this? You've done it, said the old woman. Well, when the knight next returns, we'll tell him his clothes are clean and he must honour his promise to be wed. Kari was overjoyed. She regarded her work happily. She didn't understand why it had worked, but it had. And now she might finally find happiness. When the knight arrived the following day, the washerwoman kept her promise to tell him his clothes had been washed and that he was to be married. Beaming with pride, she informed him that her daughter had been the one to clean the clothes. The knight with the strange matrimony criterion was delighted. His plan had worked. And so the daughter and the knight were engaged to be wed. Kari was distraught. She'd washed the clothes. The knight should be hers. The betrayal hurt her deeply, and she was beside herself imagining the upcoming nuptials. She didn't know what to do. But suddenly, she remembered. The fruit. This, this was surely the time that she was in the most danger a mortal had ever been in. And yeah, it's difficult to defend this one on really any level. I just don't know. Not when the bull was fighting the Archfiend of Hell. Not when the bull couldn't return to her. Both of which would probably have stretched that most danger a mortal has ever been in criteria but either of which would have been a damn sight closer to it than getting cheated out of your victory in a weird-ass dating competition. But apparently she thought this was the perfect time. She found the apple, perfect, succulent, and she bit into it. She didn't quite know what she was expecting, but maybe, like me, and probably you, gentle listener, she was expecting that some kind of magic was pretty likely. Imagine her surprise when biting down there was a nasty crunch and a horrible metallic feeling against her teeth. 
She took the apple out of her mouth to see what she'd bitten. Something awful, probably, given the apple had been left so long. But no. To her astonishment, the apple contained gold and jewels of the finest quality. That was it. Kari was made for life. No longer would she have to rely upon working for strangers who ripped her off. So, of course, what did she do? Go to the washerwoman's daughter of the riches and say to her, All of these I will give to you if you will do two things for me. One, delay your wedding by one day, because apparently that is a thing. And two, allow me to go into the knight's room alone at night. Which seems like a pretty dodgy deal all around to me. But the daughter saw the riches, and she was swayed. Somehow she got the venue to move the date, reissued invitations, changed the photographer and the caterers around, and the night before her wedding, she let Kari into the night's room. The bar for plans in folk stories is notoriously set quite low. Even given this, this one has got to be up there in the totally much better ways to get what you want given the resources at your disposal category. And also, it just seems like a trap to the daughter, surely. But anyway, Kari had what she wanted, so into the knight's room she went. Now, unbeknownst to her, the mother had got wind of Kari's little plan, and before the knight had gone to bed, she'd prepared for him a concoction to help him rest. A little night nurse. Or more accurately, a full-on magical tranquilizer. So our good knight was sleeping soundly when Kari was at his bedside. Now she sang to him, but to save all your ears, I will merely say, Seven long years I served for thee, the glassy hill I climbed for thee, the bloody clothes I rang for thee, and wilt thou not waken and turn to me? Now the sticklers amongst you will have noticed she didn't do all of those things for the knight. But whatever, it didn't matter, because the knight stayed asleep. As morning came, the mother burst into the room before the knight awoke. Time's up, she said, and Kari was forced to leave. Now you know what happens next. She bites into the pear, and lo and behold, even brighter bling. Kari offers it to the daughter, the wedding moves again. Mother does the business with the sleeping draught, and despite the singing, the object of Kari's affection snores his way peacefully through the night. I like to imagine that this time she went all out. Shaking him, splashing him with water, air horn by the ear. But the result was the same. Such was the power of the old witch's concoction. The next day, it was the plum's turn. Curry cut into it, and to her complete lack of surprise, the wealth there was enough to purchase half a kingdom. She gave it all to the washerwoman's daughter, who was probably expecting the same by now, and must have been having some serious questions about where all this money was coming from, and why Kari seemed to be so determined to give it to her. But no matter, it was a great deal. So she took the proffered plum wealth. And that turned out to be a terrible mistake for her. For the knight had been getting somewhat suspicious. Not by his wedding being moved all the time, apparently. But when he was hunting during the day, a companion of his asked him what all that talk and moaning was, coming from his room on the previous night. Possibly with a nudge-nudge and a wink-wink. Before your wedding, you saucy dog. He wasn't a particularly sound sleeper usually, 
but he couldn't remember any sound the last two nights. But his companions insisted, and with the tone of their insinuations, he knew they were sincere. So when the imminent mother-in-law brought him one of those strange-tasting drinks, he saw fit to send her off to get some honey to sweeten it with. In her absence, he discreetly poured it away, and when she returned, he said, Oh no, didn't need that honey at all, went down a treat. Best be getting me to sleep. He stretched his arm out. Absolutely shattered for some reason. And he lay down to sleep. The old woman smiled and slipped away. Later in the evening, when the night had fallen into a more natural sleep, Kari made her entrance. Because doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results is a top-notch smart plan. Seven long years I served for thee, the glassy hill I climbed for thee, thy bloody clothes I rang for thee, and wilt thou not waken and turn to me? And at that, he woke. And she told him everything, maybe compressing the years of the smith, similarly to how I have done. And in particular, she made it clear how it had been she who washed his clothes. He listened astonished, but soon his course of action became clear. There was to be a wedding. As an aside, he executed the washerwoman and her daughter, which seems proportionate and not the actions of a tyrannical madman. We can presume all the jewels from the fruit were recovered from them. He and Kari were married, and eventually, despite her inauspicious beginnings and through many twists and turns, she made her fortune, and her and the knight lived happily ever after. And of the devil-defeating Black Bull, no more was ever heard. So, a classic fairy tale ending there. Everything wrapped up suddenly and neatly, and we'll discuss that in a bit. The story is a real odd one. As I mentioned quite a bit throughout, you can definitely tell it's a fairy story. It sticks a lot less to coherent narratives than the more mythological or legendary tales that we've covered, and while a lot happens, in some ways it's a simpler, linear story, despite its oddities. The motivations and actions of characters are not really an issue, and neither are demands of time and space. Rules about how the world works seem irrelevant and contradictory throughout. It feels a lot like what we've got is a lot of story tropes stuck together, with what happens determined by the demands of those tropes, rather than the actors being possessed of agency or reality of their own. They exist within the story, not in some wider world in which the story takes place. Even for fairy tales, this is a particularly egregious example of this. Events happen to the third daughter, or Kari, in turn, without much rhyme or reason, and she's just carried along with them. I find the individual elements really intriguing. The bulls fight with the devil, the air turning blue, the bull and his brothers and what's happened to him, the bloody clothes. But none are explained, and for me the tale ends up being a peculiar mishmash of tonally fairy tale elements with no underlying sense to bring them together. You may be interested to know that there is a version of this tale where the bull is red, and more importantly, turns out to be a prince under enchantment, and having removed the curse from him, it's him who the daughter ends up marrying, which ties the elements of the story together a lot more neatly, but is not the version that has become the most famous. 
And where does this story come from? As I said earlier, it's generally purported to be Scottish in origin, as ascribed to it by Scottish author Robert Chambers, and is said to be a few centuries old. However, the first definite version we have of it comes from the mid-19th century, and there's a bit of a mystery behind its origins. The very first mention is in 1801, where intriguingly, it is only said to be similar to a story called The Three-Footed Dog of Norway, which is also lost to time. And there is some question as to whether the story that's being referred to at that point is even the same one as we've got now. The version I've just told is basically one written down by Robert Chambers in 1842, and then further popularised by Australian folklorist Joseph Jacobs, who, in inverted commas, translated the tale from Scots to English. And I have seen an intriguing suggestion that Though the name of the tale was in existence beforehand, the details could have actually been made up by Chambers, though it's certainly an unusual tale to make up if he did so. To add another element to the mix, there's also an Irish tale, the Brown Bear of Norway, which has some similarities, but is first recorded slightly after this one is. Now the story is sometimes said to have some relation to the ancient Greek story of Psyche and Cupid, where Psyche is supposed to fall in love with a monster. It's also meant to be related to the story of Beauty and the Beast more generally, a story which has lots of versions all across Europe, and which according to some academics, has its roots thousands of years ago. More specifically, the Black Bull also has motifs that crop up elsewhere. A glass hill appears in an actual Norwegian fairy story, The Princess on the Glass Hill, and there is a Russian fairy tale called The Feather of Finnists, The Falcon, which has the motif about the washing of the bloody shirt. There are clearly lots of international links between these kind of fairy stories, and while this one is said to have come from the British Isles, in many ways it could have come from the folklore of many countries that share lots of these same motifs and are generally closely connected to a pan-European fairy tale tradition. One other note about this mysterious fairy tale. I mentioned at the start the food to take away being hobbit-worthy, and Lord of the Rings author Tolkien was well aware of this story. In what might be his most famous essay, called On Fairy Story, he coins a word, eucatastrophe, referring to the sudden turn of events at the end of a story that leads to a happy ending. Fairy stories, says Tolkien, offer us a fleeting glimpse of a world of joy. And the Black Bull of Norway with its happy ending despite everything that has happened, fits very much into that category. In that essay, Tolkien also says something specifically referencing the Black Bull of Norway, about the relation of stories to each other. And that ties back into the discussion of origins we've just gone into. And I'll quote it here. Quote, We read that the Black Bull of Norway is Beauty and the Beast, or is the same story as Eros and Psyche. Statements of that kind may express some element of truth, but they are not true in a fairy tale story sense, they are not true in art or literature. It is precisely the colouring, the atmosphere, the unclassifiable individual details of a story, and above all the general purport that informs with life the undissected bones of the plot, that really count. We must be satisfied with the soup that is set before us, and not desire to see the bones of the ox out of which it has been boiled. 
By the soup I mean the story as it is served up by its author or teller, and by the bones its sources or material, even when, by rare luck, those can be with certainty discovered. End quote. Which seems a very reasonable interpretation from one of the greatest minds on this subject of the 20th century, and pretty much takes the wind out of the sails of all of the post-story discussions I do on this podcast. Thanks, Tolkien. So, on that note, we'll continue with it no longer this time. Join us next episode when, with midwinter upon us, we'll be keeping with a long-standing Christmas tradition and telling some ghost stories. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information, including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.